Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer. couple announcements. Number one, we don't need any more mailbag questions. We got a lot of great questions, and I think we'll have that episode later this month. Secondly, Kelly Weil has been suspended for some remarks she made during the mailbag segment. I'm just kidding. It's the holidays. But we're joined instead by Daily Beast congressional reporter, our man on the hill, Sam Brody. Sam, how you doing? Good. Great to be back, Will. Yes, obviously you were holding it down earlier this year in some guest episodes, frequently requested guest host. Now you're back to, to walk us through the reign of Kevin McCarthy. All right, first of all, this is going to be a small item, but it's something that kind of just picking at my brain. It's a marker I want to put down, which is the right's increasingly reckless obsession with Twitter spaces. Now, Sam, have you ever been in a Twitter space? I honestly, this is pretty embarrassing, but I can't say that I have ever been in a Twitter space. I think I would describe that as the opposite of embarrassing. <laughs> So for folks who don't know, Twitter Spaces, it's kind of like Clubhouse. It's like a shared audio live experience where people pop in and then they pop off. And so in this case, the reason I'm thinking about this is this has been going on for a little while. And maybe it was like this on Clubhouse, but I think it's really a Twitter Spaces phenomenon. And like, for example, Matt Gates is a big Twitter Spaces guy. And I don't know if it's because the audio is transient, at least unless someone's recording it, that people kind of like think they can get a little rowdier. So a few nights ago, Christian Walker, Herschel Walker's son, someone, and I'm not going to name this person. I haven't verified these things. It gets pretty personal. But another right-wing pundit said, Christian Walker, you cost us this Senate race. And Christian Walker said, by criticizing your dad, and Christian Walker said, oh, yeah? Well, you had an affair with my friend. And then really got into it. Quite explicit details. Then people decided to do a Twitter space. Now, a bunch of these right-wing personalities then start debating this. But what was fascinating to me, I later got a recording of it, which is why I'm talking about this, is these guys were just going absolutely nuts, revealing these things that they would never reveal in any other environment in front of like 2,000 people baiting, oh, this person was giving sexual favors in the lobby of the TPUSA convention. I mean, this family's been struggling to have a baby. All these people are having all these affairs. And I'm listening to this. It's just really reckless and and bizarre. So I think I just wanted to, it seems like there's something cooking here with Twitter spaces. These right-wing pundits with names like Nuance Bro, they just love gossiping in front of thousands of people. (laughs) It's fascinating to me. I mean, this came up another time where Nate Hockman who's kind of a young gun who I think was associated with National Review. He's kind of a young Tucker Carlson monk in D.C. And he came into some Twitter space and he was speaking very complimentarily about Nick Fuentes. And I believe as a result, a recording of that got out and he lost some fellowship or something. So these guys, they just love Twitter spaces. And then a day later, they come to the recordings, make it to old Will. And I'm stunned. You're making Twitter spaces sound awesome. Elon promised to revitalize Twitter and it's the space where things are happening. If by things you mean like guys with avatar of Julius Caesar accusing each other of (laughs) not being sufficiently <laughs> orthodox Christian. <laughs> that, that sounds awesome. It was funny, like, when we were talking specifically about this, like, suppose that these indiscretions that would go down at the TPUSA conventions, and the, like, different personalities of right-wing dude breaking it down at, like, 11 at night. So you have kind of, like, the Tradcath guy who's like, I could not believe a man who would say he's Christian would behave in this way. He simply never should have imbibed of wine. <laughs> 
And then some other guy who's kind of like the more old school, like kind of debauched conservative, like the whiskey and cigars guy is like, damn, this guy's a player. And then, I mean, it's kind of like a real housewife or been watching a lot of Summer House on Bravo. And like the fights that these guys get into where it's like, it's kind of like watching each episode of these shows is based around like, we're going to have a dinner and everyone's going to get really drunk and fight. All these kind of side fights break off. So for example, in in kind of the main case we're discussing here, this one woman was describing, defending this guy who supposedly had the affair. And she's like, well, other guy in this room let's not say that you're not without your indiscretions and he's like yo what are you talking about say it right now or i'll say it and everyone's like oh damn and then it was like maybe they had an affair i mean like there's a lot of material here and absolutely none of it is newsworthy but i think there's something afoot here where these guys just they love mouthing off on transient audio streams i would watch the shit out of a bravo series taking place at a TPUSA convention. I'm 100% serious. That's an incredibly good idea. I mean, they do these events in Florida and Dallas and all these different characters get together. People who are really like on the make, trying to make connections to the next level, go from 10,000 to 100,000 Instagram followers, get on PragerU, who knows? (laughs) So I think there's a lot of ambition. So stay tuned, folks. I think this is a rich source of new material for us. Speaking of every podcast, I tried to say, let's make this not about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, but he demands our attention. Sam, what is going on with Elon Musk's increasing red pilling? I think it's hard to keep up, really. And I think for me, maybe if you guys say this every week, I don't really know, but is this the week that like Elon finally went full sort of red-pilled activist? Because now the August outlets such as The Atlantic are saying Elon Musk is they're calling him like a right-wing activist and he's officially made the heel turn. I'm still reluctant given that he appeared to show shame when he was booed at Dave Chappelle's stand-up set in San Francisco, even though he claimed that he was not in fact getting booed, but people were simply just voicing their aggressive love of the new Twitter under Elon Musk. (laughs) No, they were saying blue, Twitter blue. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's what they were saying. It tells me that he's still looking for the the love of the normies, but maybe that was his Trump at the White House correspondence dinner moment. And I've been thinking that maybe he starts running for president on an edgelord platform, but maybe <laughs> we're getting too far ahead of things. Will, can you talk about, I honestly was not enough in the weeds on this, but maybe this is really the sign that Elon has gone down the final rabbit hole, which is this QAnon trafficking stuff. Could you fill me in on what's going on there? Yeah, so this is actually like quite a thorny knot to untangle, but here's the deal. So this all takes place over really the course of a couple days, I think maybe starting on Friday and and coming to Monday. So the deal is this. So Elon, he's taken over Twitter, obviously, and he seems to be sort of casting around for reasons to disparage the old Twitter operation and to say like, well, you may not like me. I may be bumbling and stumbling through this, but like the last guys were pedophiles, (laughs) essentially. And so he has teamed up with this person, this woman named Eliza Blue, who's a self-described trafficking survivor. She kind of has appeared out of nowhere over the past year. She goes on places like Tim Pool and stuff like this. So she made these claims to a blog called Tesla Roddy. She's a big Tesla fan that basically Elon was he was running the pedophiles off Twitter. And this is a little weird to me to begin with, because like, I just don't think of Twitter as certainly my feed was not overrun by child porn and pedophiles. And I don't think that was a lot of people's experience. But so she's claiming, oh, Elon's this great hero to the children. So he's really embraced her. And he went on. Do you want to talk about Twitter spaces? I was listening to one of her Twitter spaces on Friday night and he went into her Twitter space and, oh, Elon, you've done such great work. And the new head of trust and safety is sort of allied with her. And so this idea, Twitter seems to really be embracing this idea that the site was really sort of pedophiles haven. And so that's on Friday. Now, then a little later in the weekend, he says, oh no, not just were these pedophiles lurking and Twitter wasn't doing enough to stop them, but perhaps Twitter staffers themselves were were up to a little something. So both Eliza Blue and Elon, they go after this guy named Yoel Roth, who used to be the old head of trust and safety and had briefly stuck around during the Musk regime. And so she tweets this article he had tweeted that was like, can a student consent to sex with a teacher? Apparently it was about an adult student, but the result was no. <laughs> it was very classic, like kind of Pizzagate tactic of like digging up these really old tweets tweets out of context. And then Elon Musk goes, hmm. And then he finds this guy's thesis, which was about like, can we have young gay people on Grindr, but in a way that they're not being taken advantage of by predators, which I don't know, seems all right for a thesis. So he cuts it out of context and then goes, oh, maybe this is why the pedophiles ran rampant. So now we have CNN reporting that this Yoel Roth guy has had to go into hiding because Elon is pegging him as a pedophile, which 
which of course he did before right with the Thai submarine rescue he said oh oh this guy's a pedo and so he loves doing this now is calling someone a pedophile a QAnon thing it is a QAnon but I don't think always when people are calling using pedophile as an insult it's not always a QAnon thing I think perhaps people have been a little ahead of the Elon is a where we go one we go all guy however he's not really dissuading me from thinking he's headed in that direction I think you're right I wanted to like get into that because obviously the whole point of this dog whistly stuff is that there's plausible deniability and Elon can say oh of course I'm not a QAnon whatever Mm -hmm. but I feel like this also has to sort of do with his association with the folks who throw out a kind of related dog whistle of the whole like groomer and kind of like because this is adjacent to that right and these are the sort of people that Elon is trying to apparently trying to cultivate right that's exactly right if he can sort of position himself as like the scourge Eliza Blue has criticized QAnon herself although she's also said she believes the world is run by a satanic cabal so it, it's kind of like six of one half dozen of the other I think it's the classic thing where this is a very difficult thing to disagree with if you sort of cloak yourself in this mantle of like I'm protecting the children I think he has wisely seen that as a good path to blaze so then on monday night he tweets follow the rabbit emoji now follow the white rabbit or follow the rabbit is a, is a QAnon thing but it's also from the matrix it's from alice in wonderland so is it a QAnon thing i do think he's headed towards that i think there's like a really good chance he's going to tweet like where we go on we go all at some point he's really like he would not be the first billionaire to be get into QAnon. as someone pointed out on twitter the guy who created minecraft is also a big QAnon guy oh wow yeah notch i know (laughs) think of that when you're mining for ore it'll never be the same again (laughs) the other thing to note about the whole elon situation right now is i think number one it definitely seems to be headed towards like there's been like a lot of kind of dancing around is elon right wing and obviously he was like yes i am vote for republicans i am and then now we have him saying like we got to destroy the woke mind virus for a while this has been kind of obvious because the people he interacts with it's not like he really even interacts with like ben shapiro he interacts with ian miles chong is sort of gamergate leftover from malaysia i mean like he interacts with just kind of like lara logan is another one i mean he interacts with like some pretty crazy people even by the standards of right-wing twitter so unluckily the new york times i hate to beat up on their coverage of the right but they have this thing that's like we can't quite nail down elon's politics and then he then instantly goes into this kind of quasi QAnon moment <laughs> we can't quite nail down his politics and meanwhile elon is like replying to at cat turned to about the woke mind virus it's like he's really a moderate if you listen to what he says exactly like cat turd is like sort of a shadow trust and safety guy on this site when he tweets elon you got to get this guy unbanned and he's like oh yeah we're working on it so cat turd is of course we all know he's got very complex ideology sam didn't you once see someone with a cat turd bumper sticker i did it was like one of the weird moments in which i felt either i was hallucinating or twitter had become manifested in real life real life in the form (laughs) of somebody's bmw in the parking lot of a whole foods in phoenix arizona but that is what happened and i had to do like a triple take but yeah, there's people out there with an I love cat turd bumper sticker. <laughs> oh, you know what? I think Elon did something good this week. Do we, in fact, have to hand it to him? I think we got to hand it to Elon. What are you thrilled about? I am thrilled that Twitter is going to have a 4,000 character tweet limit. Really? This isn't something I would think of as a good thing, but expand on that for me. <laughs> Look, more and more, I, I just see less and less content in my Twitter feed, which is, I guess, let's just clarify it. I see less and less content that is not paid for on my Twitter feed. And based between the choice of spending less time on Twitter and actually doing work, I'm looking forward to the 4,000 characters because, I mean, that's just going to be all tweets are going to take up, like, you're going to have to scroll for minutes to even get to the end of a tweet. I'm just going to be going off. I'm just going to be like, and another thing. (laughs) I think we can all agree that threads kind of suck. And so if we get less of those, I'm cool with that. We're into it, man. So Sam, taking things to your home turf, the place where you rest your head at night, Congress, the GOP is going to have a narrow control of the House starting next year. Who are some of the members of Congress to watch? And I mean this in a, I don't mean who's going to be the most responsible member of the Ways and Means Committee. I mean this in a fever <laughs> dreams way. Who's the new Marjorie Taylor Greene? Because honestly, she's become a kind of establishment. Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a Chamber of Commerce rhino at this point <laughs> by the standards of some of the new members who've entered. So just to take a step 
back. I mean, Republicans got the House majority, but it was a far worse performance than many had expected. People, including top Republicans, were saying, we're going to pick up as many as 30 seats. And people who tend to win those competitive races usually are a little more moderate. People are like, oh, there's going to be this new sort of deal-making wing of the Republican Party. Well, what actually happened is they picked up a net of eight or nine seats. And there was a good number of retirements on their side and safely Republican districts, which were filled by people who are in the mold of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And these folks are going to have a lot more influence now because it's a narrow majority. In fact, these people could make it so that Kevin McCarthy doesn't actually become speaker, which is a drama that's currently unfolding. So let's take a look at some of these folks. I did a story on this before the election because these folks largely all ended up winning their races. You got a couple of people who are very January 6th adjacent, or in the case of one guy, Derek Van Orden from Wisconsin, was, was actually at the Capitol on January 6th. In fact, not only was he at the Capitol, but he paid for his trip there with campaign funds. So you got to love that. There's a guy from Georgia. That rocks where he's like, look, for campaign purposes, I do need to be punching a cop. <laughs> he obviously hasn't been charged. I just got to get my visibility there with the base. Yeah. So there's another guy, Mike Collins, who spoke at the Justice for J6 event last year. Was that the one where all the undercover cops were there? Yes, exactly. It was the, the event where there was probably more reporters than actual attendees and it was prepared for by the D.C. police and relevant authorities the way they probably should have prepared for the actual <laughs> January 6th round. But this guy, Mike Collins, wins a seat in Georgia, and he spoke at this Justice for J6 rally, and he's really courted some of the kind of same Marjorie Taylor Greene-style folks. He's also just kind of like a classic Republican House member. This is a super rich guy who built a trucking business. I feel like that is sort of the like archetypal Republican House member. Another Another kind of more cutting edge Republican House member, this guy, Corey Mills from Florida, he won a seat there. His claim to fame is that he runs a company that makes munitions for police, including tear gas. And during his primary, he ran ads bragging about how he made munitions that caused the libs to literally cry more. Oh, geez. He's like, you know, outside the White House where they gassed all those protesters? That was me. <laughs> and he even was like, oh, if you guys in the media have a problem with me, I got a plan for that. And then he cuts to video of people being tear gassed. So he's going to be a cool and interesting dude to watch. We got also a legit MAGA influencer in the house next year, Anna Paulina Luna from Florida, who is a big figure on the TPUSA sort of circuit, the festival circuit, as it were. To be, I don't know if we could call Marjorie Taylor Greene like a legit MAGA influencer before she won, but this might be the first person elected to the House who we could kind of credibly say is maybe the first kind of like conservative influencer type to win election to Congress. She was on the whole, like, as you said, I mean, the TPUSA circuit for a while. I mean, it's look, good Lord, she has almost 500,000 Instagram followers. So yeah, I mean, she's really out there. I mean, she had this whole arc where Roger Stone has some like really obscure feud with her and was desperate to sabotage her primary. And obviously it did not work out. <laughs> So, I mean, it's a glimpse of the folks. And then you get more like traditional kind of types, I guess, what counts for that these days. There's this guy who got elected from Missouri who authored a bill in the state legislature that would have changed state law to assume that anyone who killed anyone else did so in self-defense and that it would have to be proven <laughs> that it was not self-defense as opposed to what is normally the case, which is vice versa. People in Missouri called it the right to murder law. That's crazy. Yeah, it's wild. But one of the wings of the conservative movement is like always fiddling with these murder laws. Like I remember when I was in Texas, there was this thing where it was a big deal that a guy shot a guy who was robbing his neighbor's house and fleeing. That guy got off and people, I mean, they love changing these self-defense, sort of expanding the definition of self-defense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you've got your 2A absolutists, you've got your MAGA influencers, you've got rich trucking guys, January 6th sympathizers, and there's probably some in that group who didn't even make a lot of headlines during their campaigns who are going to come to Congress like many do and start really tearing shit up. So I feel like Madison Cawthorn, although it didn't really work out for him, I mean, people like Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert have really been at the forefront of like Congress member as poster. And that whole idea is to kind of get in these scraps and get like internet content. I mean, do you think that the new members will have learned from them and then come in with their own sort of shticks to stand out from the rest of the freshmen? I think it's a really good question. And I think the arc of the political universe for Republicans bends towards posting, no doubt about it. And I think that they may look to types like Madison Cawthorn and just say, oh, well, he made a lot of mistakes. I can do this better. Because the, the set of incentives for these folks sort of remains 
unchanged, I think, unless you disagree. I think in the case of at least one of them, Anna Polina Luna, I mean, that's how she came to prominence and got to a point where she could actually be in a position to exercise real power as a member of Congress was was through posting. And I think posting for some of these folks is the only way they know how to really move through the world. So I think it's going to get to a really interesting point because in the time of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, Republicans have been in the minority in the House. They could sort of pop off and there wasn't too much of actual implications on policymaking. Well, now Republicans control the House and these are going to be the people pushing for a Hunter Biden select committee on dick pics. And there are going to be people pushing for impeaching Joe Biden and every figure in the Biden administration. So the posting is about to, there's going to be some real stakes. And so we're going to have to pay, I think, a lot more attention to what they say than perhaps we did to Madison Cawthorn's dark MAGA postings other than just kind of enjoying the content. Uh, I'm going to miss them. We're going to have to read these posts for like some actual impact on what House Republicans do, which is going to be a big change. Well, with that in mind, it seems like Kevin McCarthy might might not be able to nail down the speakership. I mean, what's one or two things we should be looking for as we head into January and he is potentially going to have to kind of scrabble for these votes? Yeah, I think two things to watch that maybe you listeners will find interesting, which is one of which is, I, I think, an underrated dynamic of this, which has been reported, but I still think is it bears mentioning, is Marjorie Taylor Greene has been one of McCarthy's most vocal defenders throughout this entire process. And in fact, a good number of people kind of firmly in the MAGAverse in terms of posting and public opinion have gone to bat for McCarthy. I think his efforts to cultivate the kind of far MAGA right over the last two years are bearing fruit now and that they're defending him. But and you get this really interesting dynamic where you have people like Matt Gates, also of this world, really articulating a harsh case against McCarthy and then people like Marjorie Taylor Greene defending him. So to the extent that this splits sort of the same faction on the right. That's a super interesting dynamic to watch. And then what I'd say the second thing is, is I do think McCarthy ultimately will get there. What he will have to do is give up some concessions to the people who are kind of withholding their votes, all of whom are largely members on the right flank of, of even the House Freedom Caucus. So what he's going to probably have to give up are things that are going to make that faction in Congress that much more powerful. And we're talking about like wonky rule changes and stuff and things that allow them to force amendment votes whenever they want, or even force a motion to vacate the speakership if they want to do that. That's the price for these folks' votes. And it's just going to make them more powerful. And it's probably going to create <laughs> scenario where even if Kevin McCarthy gets there to the speakership, it's going to be hard for him to hold on to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the interesting thing is is that a lot of their demands will essentially, if he gives in to these demands, will make the House and the GOP caucus even more tumultuous. Yeah, it's sort of a devil's bargain. And the thing is, is I think this would be the case really for anybody who would be in that situation. Certainly people have their kind of specific bones to pick with McCarthy, but something kind of in the background of all of this is like, there's no one else who is a viable candidate who could get the different co coalitions in the party together. It's really this guy. And look, all bets are off if he doesn't get the number of votes and maybe somebody else steps up. But this is about as good as a consensus candidate is going to do. And he's still having a really, really hard time. And if that's the case now, like this group of people is going to be utterly chaotic over the next two years. So, Will, I'm very excited to hear from our guests this week. They have some really interesting recent experience over the weekend and news to share with us. Could you let us know who's coming on? Yes, this week we've got Hannah Geis and Michael Hayden. They're two reporters for the Southern Poverty Law Center. And I wanted to have them on this week because over the weekend they donned some black tie attire and went to the New York Republican Club's annual gala, where just really, really serious extremists bent elbows with new members of Congress and Don Jr. And ultimately, they got the boot. They were found out and kicked out. And so I think this is interesting because the New York Republican Club is not just, it sounds kind of boring, right? But it's sort of a real engine of Republican extremism these days. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mint. 
Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right, this week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Hannah Gaze, a senior researcher at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and Michael Edison Hayden, who's a senior investigative reporter at the very same place. So over the weekend, they attended the New York Young Republican Club Gala, which featured both prominent extremists and new members of Congress all hanging out together. Unfortunately, they were not able to celebrate all of that fun with Don Jr. for very long because they got the boot. So Hannah and Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So what made y'all want to attend this event? I mean, this group, I think in my mind, holds kind of a unique place among, I mean, there's a reason you're not infiltrating the Philadelphia Young Republicans Club or the Boston Young Republicans. What is it about this group in particular that interested you? I think it's particularly their history. And I mean, when we initially decided to go to this, the guest list for it was much smaller. Don Jr. hadn't been invited. It was, I believe, just Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jack Posobiec. I believe I've spoken to you on Fever Dreams before about Posobiec. So it's like mm-hmm. Posobiec playing live, like a live set. I wanted to attend for that reason, because it's been reporting on him for so long. I wanted to see what it would be like to attend one of his speaking events. And after we bought the tickets back in September, the guest list just continued to grow. I mean, they had this pretty eclectic array and long array of guest honorary attendees including just a variety, multiple sitting lawmakers, as well as various big names from the conservative world. Newly elected lawmakers, which is, I think, important distinction because they've chosen to do this just before they're taking office. So talk to me about who is at this thing. I mean, there's, I think from your reporting, we discover things like Steve Bannon hanging out with Peter Brimlow, who's a bad white nationalist. I mean, who did y'all see once you got inside? So, I mean, there's a collection of what we would describe as ultra-nationalist European leaders. These are people from AFD party in Germany. Austrian Freedom Party. These are real hardcore far-right European parties. And the type of people that Republicans traditionally would want to have nothing to do with, I think. I think that's an important distinction based upon where we are. Even at the very beginning of the Trump years, they would have been a little bit cautious about doing stuff like this. These folks are, for example, I mean, Hannah, you did some of the research on the European stuff. I mean, AFD is under investigation for extremism in their own country. One of their members was involved in a recent coup plot, right? So you have them Then you have folks like influencers, like obviously like Jack, but also like lower level influencers like Raheem Kassam, formerly of Breitbart UK. You have Josh Hammer, who is somewhat mysterious opinion editor for Newsweek. Figures like Ashley St. Clair, another kind of (laughs) C-level influencer. And you have them mixed up with a bunch of people who wanted to be there. And most of the people who wanted to be there are a lot older than young Republicans. Yeah, I think it's a pretty eclectic array. And it's what's interesting about a lot of these events is all of them just being in the same room together. Take Peter Brimlow, for instance. During the Trump years, association with him might be enough to get a minor news cycle going around you. Just thinking of Larry Kudlow here. But at this, I mean, you had him and Lydia hugging Steve Bannon, and no one seemed to bat an eye. So this is a veritable Coachella of far-right <laughs> figures. To the extent you're able to talk about this, how did you prepare for this in terms of what you wore? How did you get in? Like, how weird was all of that? Well, I just wanted to say, it's funny you should say that, because I told Hannah when I saw that Marjorie Taylor Greene would be playing a set with Jack Pozobic, I said, this is the corn and limb biscuit of its... (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be Woodstock 99. I saw the full bill. I was like, well, now it's Woodstock 99. (laughs) No one played break stuff, though. It was very sad. Which is very disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) I've been very busy with a lot of different investigations. I didn't even remember it was black tie until the last possible minute. And I went to get, without giving away my location, I went to a local tux person who typically handles proms and things like that. And I said, yeah, just give me whatever will get me in. And Hannah is not really much, you can speak to yourself. There's really not much of an evening wear type person, I think it's fair to say. (laughs) 
That would be accurate. Yeah, and so she just kind of consulted with, uh, did you consult with Kelly Weil? I think so. <laughs> yeah, Kelly and a handful of other female friends because the rules around women and black tie events and what's appropriate dress wear for those is not very clear. SPLC wanted to give us security, so we got a security detail who kind of brought us to and from just in case there was any kind of scenario in which we would get attacked by Proud Boys or something like that. Yeah, then we kind of timed the event to try to get there early in the hope that maybe Maybe that would be better than a huge rush in which we could get recognized very easily and just try to lay low. We registered under our own names and we made a plan going in that we would not lie about who we were, although we were very cautious about talking to people at the table we were seated because they were not of great importance to our reporting. And that's the kind of place where we could have gotten busted and thrown out very, very easily because people are chatting. So we kind of kept our heads down there and everywhere else just took photographs of things. Well, and to clarify about the tickets thing, I had originally purchased the tickets in September when they were still doing early bird tickets. And because there's really only one Hannah Gaze in the United States and quite possibly the entire world, I don't really know. I used my first middle name. But what was really funny about it is when we got there, they didn't even check tickets. You just walked in and you picked up your name tag. Yeah. So theoretically, you could just get in there and just in a tux and you could have just taken a name tag, right? You could just been like, yeah, I'm Jack Pasovic. And Jack says, where's my name tag? And that was Jack to print him another one. Because the level of vetting was so poor for this event. And actually, when Vish Burra started shoving me later on in the event, it was after I started asking him who vetted this event. I was like, Vish, what's going on here? What is this? Who vetted this? And then he started to shove me, got real pissed off. Well, so what did you discover once you got inside? I mean, obviously, you were taking some risks going into this event, what made it worth it? Well, there's so many things, but I think that the first most important thing is that when you have so many people who, let's just throw academic definitions out of the window for a second, but in a colloquial sense, are fascists. We have so many folks like that in a suit and tie situation where they're all getting together and it's a global collection of these folks. It's very important to see not only how they behave, but what they talk about. And I think what was revelatory for me is that they did not once put forth anything that would improve the material lives of American people. Every single thing referred to this war that they believe that they're in. And we are not at war. I have to repeatedly say that. We are not in their war. They are at war with us. And I think it's really important to understand that there are people in this country who get together and plot in private and give each other awards who believe that they're at war with us. They believe they're at war with reporters. They believe they're at war with LGBTQ people. They believe they're at war with liberals, leftists, any opponents of Trump, never Trump Republicans. It's pretty scary. And it is really, in an academic sense, literal fascist propaganda that they're spewing. So for that sense, I was felt it was very important to document document it and to inform the public that it's happening. Yeah, I think for me, just echoing what Mike said, just being in the space and seeing the profound depths of the levels of resentment that these groups have, both for the left, but also for anyone who's not necessarily a white male in this country, and how they express it, especially when they think they're in private. I think one thing that's particularly interesting about covering events this way, they made a crack about how the corporate press they were free from the corporate press early on in the event, is that they're letting their guard down to a certain extent. Even though they're putting out some clips and some propaganda of speeches that were given throughout the night, it's still a fundamentally, in some senses, they see it as a private event. And it's a time for them to get together and maybe do talk about things and discuss things in a way that they wouldn't necessarily do at an event that was fully public and with large masses of reporters. So it's really interesting to kind of be in those spaces where they feel like they can let their guard down a little bit. So this is a rare opportunity, obviously, and I read Gerald's article and saw kind of what filtered out on Twitter from this. But was there anything in particular that was said in there or any moment that you felt was particularly remarkable or might tell us something new about where this movement is headed? Well, I think there's a number of things. I think the first thing is wipe away any idea you had that the midterms are going to change the way the Republican Party operates. George Santos is one of the incoming figures there. My parents live in his district in Long Island. And this is a district where I've spent a lot of my time. Like I grew up there and it's filled with Hillary Clinton liberals. He squeaked in in an election year where people were not worried in a place where people are not worried about losing abortion rights and wanted to voice their anger with Biden. And he squeaked in and in the 
first thing he does is this. I think that's indicative that the Republican Party does not have anything to offer people other than January 6th. They are Kid Rock, Ba with the Ba, January 6th. That is what the party is. There's no return to this cut taxes and be inclusive to other races. There's no, that rhetoric is gone. They're into this friend enemy distinction thing. And I think that that is not going to change anytime soon. You can't get a better example than somebody like George Santos in a district where he is going to this event and smiling along as Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about how January 6th should have been an armed insurrection. That's one. And then two, obviously, I've done some reporting on Newsweek recently and what's happened to their opinion section. What has happened there is very mysterious. We know that Josh Hammer was put in in the run-up to the 2020 election. We don't know why Newsweek brought him in. He had no credentials as an opinion editor or anything like that. He was already a, a political activist and operative. And here he is seated at a table with other political actors and operatives who he has given bylines to. I think there is a, like a clear effort to try to make what they do normal. And they're essentially using what's left of hollowed out of Newsweek's absolutely demolished brand to try to position themselves as normal, give folks like this bylines and stuff like that. And to see this guy giddy about the prospect of meeting Peter Brimlow was very enlightening. So those are the two things that I walk away with is one, that we are very much in this hard right authoritarian moment for the Republican Party. And two, they are trying to find ways to make this what they do seem normal and likable. Yeah. I mean, to add to what Mike said, for me, it's that in the first case that basically the guardrails are completely off. They feel like they can say and do whatever they want. They have fully embraced this lost cause rhetoric and this just absolutely, I mean, honestly, pretty frightening hard right authoritarian stance that really embraces and sees January 6th as something that I think, as Marjorie Taylor Greene's speech sort of hinted at, didn't necessarily even go far enough for them. Somewhat more subtle aspect of it, too, is this coming together of these hard right European figures and Americans. I mean, there's this, every so often when events like this happen, you occasionally see this line that somehow transnationalism and the far right is new or has somehow developed in a way that is somewhat novel. It's not. I mean, these guys have been making transnational connections for years and collaborating in various different ways. It's just the internet makes it somewhat easier. But it was really, I mean... It's very interesting to see that large of a European contingent at an event like this. I mean, obviously, throughout the Trump years, you had Nigel Farage running around D.C. and New York on occasion. But I don't think you necessarily would have seen this extent of an effort to collaborate with European extremists. For me, that coming together, whatever happens from it, it's sort of unclear as to what kind of collaboration I think could, can sometimes come out of these events is pretty interesting. Some of the quotes that people gave in these speeches are just wild. You've got Gavin Wax, who's the head of this group, saying, we want to cross the Rubicon. We want total war. We must be prepared to do battle in every arena, in the media, in the courtroom, at the ballot box, and in the streets. And then later he says, the left only understands the language of pure and unadulterated power. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, well, if we ran January 6th, it would have been armed, it would have succeeded. This is really disturbing stuff that you found out here. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good. The comment about the streets is the one that really stands out to me because we know what he's talking about, right? He's talking about Proud Boys beating the shit out of you. And that's not good. It's not something you should be. People walk around scared that this is going to happen, but you need to be vigilant. You need to be prepared because he means it. He knows what this is about. Gavin Wax in 2018 wrote a defense of the Proud Boys and the header of the article is We Are All Proud Boys. So he knows what he's talking about when he says streets. Yeah. And it's it was kind of interesting to watch some of the reactions after the fact. I mean, like Steve Bannon posted on Getter, I think that it was basically a quip that the oh SPLC is saying that we're all so dangerous and scary and that's like you're talking about violence here. There's no way of downplaying that. But they really want to just kind of pretend that, oh well actually well we said ballots in this quote. So therefore that's mostly what we're talking about. It's this it's effectively gaslighting. I want to hear the process of how you all were found out and then subsequently kicked out of this event. So we were very well behaved for approximately, I want to say four and a half hours. We were very well behaved until the very end. <laughs> Don't say we were not well behaved. We did our job. Oh, oh, oh. I'm saying that we just 
sat around. We didn't really talk to anyone. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So we were very well behaved the entire time. But for the most part, our plan was to just get through the speeches. Now, of course, there were a lot of speeches. By the time we got to Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think it was probably around like 1130 or so when she wrapped up, 1145. And then things started to break up a little bit. People were going to start going to an after party. I think supposedly there was drinking and dancing on the lower level where they had done the cocktail hour. And that was around the time that we decided to walk up to people and start asking them questions. Hannah wanted to ask people together. I mean, that was a decision to make whether we split up or not. This way, I guess if we get thrown out, we get thrown out together. So the first person we were going to go with was Peter Brimlow. We were going to go talk to him. I have another investigation on Bidair, I think that should publish this week. So why not go speak to him? But as we were approaching him, I said, look, hey, he's going to talk to someone. So let's follow him. And sure enough, it was Steve Bannon. And so then we documented that and then tried to speak to Brimlow's afterwards. They did not have much to say. Lydia said, you've been hounding me in reference to an email request for comment that was very polite. One in which I said to them, Merry Christmas in it. I don't know. It was a very nice email. I was not hounding. But that's a different story. Peter Brumlow shook my hand, but seemed very confused as to what was going on. He's 75. (laughs) It was late. Getting past his bedtime, I think. And then we had this interaction with Josh Hammer, where he's right there. I said, said, okay, let's go talk to him. And so I was like, hey, Josh, it's Mike from SPLC. And he looked at me and he just smiled as if he didn't fully understand like he heard the words, but he didn't like he just he's like, hi, I guess. And I was like, how are you doing? He's like, good. And I was like, are you going to go talk to Peter Brimlow? Did you know Peter Brimlow's here? He's like, Peter's here. Oh, wow. <laughs> you read the exact quote. Hannah got it from her recording. But I was like, oh, wow, where is he? And then Hannah is like, he's right over there. And he's like, I'm definitely going to go talk to him. And also when I pointed him out, too, I was like, oh, I should also introduce myself to this guy because he probably has no idea who I am. So I said, hi, my name is Hannah and I'm also from the SPLC. And he said, if I could just read the quote, he's right here right now. Hammer asked with excitement. I didn't even know he was here. He was so pumped. He was so pumped. He was like, his eyes lit up. It would be like if my nine-year-old, if you're like, hey, Pete Alonso's right here in the mall. Lynn Bitskid is playing the festival stage now? Big moment for him. And then I said, hey, Josh, because this is a real question. This is a real question, people. I said, hey, Josh, how did you end up getting your job at Newsweek? How did this guy who is tied to so many radical right figures and has turned Newsweek inside out into like a hub for a radical right public and given bylines to all kinds of very nefarious figures. How did you get your job? And he said, he stopped and he said, I'm sorry, where did you say you were from again? And his face just dropped. I told him, Mike Hayden from SPLC. And then he's like, okay, we need to go. We need to go. And then he started to move and he came back and he said, I don't know the Brimlow. I don't know Peter Brimlow. Well, and then his date said something as they were walking away, being like, you look like you work with the SPLC, which I haven't really know what that means. I haven't figured that one out. So they booted y'all out. Not yet. So then we went to go talk to Jack Pizovic. And as I was waiting online to talk to Jack Pizovic, because there's all these like very sad people who wanted to get a selfie with him. As I was waiting for him, Josh Hammer's face is like white. He looked like he was going to throw up. And he's like standing by the stage. And I waved to him. I was like, hey, how's it going again? And he's just like like doing the pee-pee dance almost by the in front of the stage and then he's like climbs up onto the stage and like runs right before us and he gets close to jack he's like jack splc it's splc now i think that jack might have already known who i was because he kept giving me looks and i think his wife may have identified me because she was really giving me looks that's a different podcast so he was prepared when i came over there and jack tried to keep things like nice at the beginning and tried to like answer the questions we were asking i decided the first question lines of question i wanted to ask him which is i think a national news worthy story which is why on September 7th, he abruptly started tweeting Stop the Steal again. We know this is a meme that he and his folks have used in the 2018 midterms and the 2016 election. Why two months before the 2020 election did Jack abruptly start tweeting it? He was the first person to do it. And he tweeted, Stop the Steal is coming. And that's what really started the campaign that became an insurrection on January 6, 2021. So I started asking about that and he was very shifty and he was like, it's a meme, it's a meme, it's Ali Alexander. No, it's Roger Stone. Like he was basically blaming other people. Of course they do have a hand in this as well, but it was just interesting, he kept deferring it. And Jack basically, he started to get agitated. He started to call me a scumbag and a troll and Vish Burra, who is the secretary of the New York Young Republicans Club, was kind of a burly guy, started to, he had 
palpable stress breath. And he started to, you got to go, you got to go and started to push me out. I agreed to leave. But then on the way out, I asked him like, who vetted? Did you vet the guest list? And that's when he started to physically shove my shoulder. And that is your story. I don't want to give you take up too much more time. I will just say the funniest part is they were kicking us out is that Vishpura said that he was going to keep our money. At which point I just said, well, I mean, yeah, if he, we had been at this event for five hours at that point. Of course, you we're going to keep our money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had a good time. Well, thank you all for your reporting. Again, that is Hannah Gaze and Michael E. Hayden from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for having us. All right, Will. I think folks are really, really going to like this fresh hollow. As we get into movie awards season, I think it is especially relevant. Yeah, so this week for Fresh Hell, I thought we'd dip into Ben Shapiro's growing online movie streaming empire. So we've talked in the past about Republican pundit Ben Shapiro and his Daily Wire, but there have been a couple articles that have come out recently that I think offer a little more insight into exactly what he's up to at Daily Wire Plus, which is sort of their version of a streaming service. Joe Bernstein at the New York Times has a story about the Daily Wire's kind of burgeoning efforts to create like right-wing Hollywood and Nashville. And then this newsletter I read called The Optionist, which kind of covers Hollywood stuff. They really got into the Daily Wire's efforts to make an Atlas Shrugged TV series. So the gist of this is that Ben Shapiro, Andrew Breitbart acolyte, and like all of these people, never tires of saying that politics is downstream of culture. So they need to create right-wing movies. And so for a little while now, they had like a school shooter movie. It was sort of a thriller where the hero fought off a school shooter. And it was a great, I think, Second Amendment tale. Gina Carano is very key to their efforts as the sort of canceled Mandalorian actress. She did a Western with them. But, you know, in terms of this Atlas Shrugged one, Sam, have you ever uh, had the pleasure of reading Atlas Shrugged? I have not had the pleasure of reading Atlas Shrugged. Well, I listen to a lot on audiobook as a young man. And first of all, kind of a thrilling story. Not everyone likes it. So the gist is, right, these industrialists flee society, and then the brave John Galt and Dagny Taggart, the protagonists, they sort of convince them to come back and overthrow the Wokies in charge of the American government. So people have just struggled to make Atlas Shrugged into anything watchable. So for decades, there were fights over the rights. In, I believe, 2011, they did make a movie out of it with Taylor Schilling, who I believe was in Orange is the New Black, I think is the main, the main character in Orange is the New Black. And I remember seeing that. I did walk out of it because I, I will also say I saw it at East Street in D.C., so kind of like an independent movie theater. And there was a guy who shushed me for talking too much during Atlas Shrugged. And it's like, come on, give me a break. It's Atlas Shrugged. So that movie... A real stinker. So that one cost $20 million to make, made $5 million. They made two more. I think they made even less money as it went on. And so now Ben Shapiro, they got the rights. What do you think about the chances here of an Atlas Shrugged TV show taking off? I just think it's funny because the politics being downstream of culture thing, like this is a work of literature that's been in the political bloodstream for such a long time that like doing a miniseries on it as some sort of like way to inject it in the culture is like politics is downstream from culture. This is a lazy river at a Las Vegas casino. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are we accomplishing here that hasn't been accomplished before? And look, I mean, like I'll reserve judgment. And speaking of somebody unlike yourself, who's a real rant head, maybe I'd check it out. If this is an attempt to make prestige TV here, I feel like it's going to be hard to get it out of the political paradigm. It's interesting. So the, this Times article also gets into sort of what else they're going to make. And so they've got the rights to this thing called the Pendragon Cycle. I guess there's some old books about they put King Arthur in sort of the Roman occupation of Britain. I guess there's like an evangelical angle to it. But the one that really interested me was described as a forthcoming children's cartoon about a family of homeschooled chinchillas. Wow. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's some real Andrew Breitbart shit. Don't remake something that already has these conservative connotations and try and get it out into the culture. Like, yeah, we need a cartoon series about homeschool chinchillas. Yeah, that's the way to do it is you have to like get all the kids addicted to the chinchilla show and then like talk about, oh, taxation is theft. They're taking the chinchillas birdseed or whatever. I mean, they should just rerun old sitcoms. I guess The Office is canceled now. They should just <laughs> rerun those as a sort of statement against wokeness. Run some sitcoms from 10 years ago. This is not the worst idea I've ever heard. I mean, I, I think there are a couple sitcoms that can't be released anymore. So like The Cosby Show would be one that is not really in syndication. 
<laughs> that would be one. And I'm sure there's a couple others. The other thing I, I wanted to highlight here is the real kind of driving force behind this business effort is a guy named Jeremy Boring. So Ben Shapiro, even as his sort of Hollywood in Nashville is coming together, he lives in Florida because apparently there was a larger Jewish community for him there. This is in the article. So the guy in charge of the on-the-ground effort is Jeremy Boring. Now, Fever Dreams listeners may remember Jeremy as the creator of Jeremy's Razors, which was their answer to Harry's Razors after Harry stopped advertising on their podcast. And so he said, well, screw this. I'm making Jeremy's Razors. Now, this guy comes off in the story as quite a character. I mean, there's kind of this like glossiness to how Daily Wire personalities often present themselves. Like whenever they have a movie premiering, they dress up in tuxedos and like sit on the set and like there's like a little popcorn machine and stuff. And so this guy is highlighted in the story as keeping a collection of luxury watches in his office in an oversized safe. Wow. This is the guy who's making the cash here. Keep the Daily Wire going. The final thing here is that we can joke about this, but I got to say they got a decent chunk of change coming in here. Supposedly they have over a million subscribers at at least $12 a month. So that's like $12 million. So I think you could definitely see, I mean, it's not a huge amount, but I think this is far from the end of the Daily Wire and their movie productions. I'm going to throw in a bonus quick extra fresh hell here because the Times also had a story about school boards that are being taken over by conservatives to ban books. And now look, this is a story we've heard before. But what struck me about this story is that a huge amount of these new school board members in Texas are being funded, their campaigns were funded almost entirely by Patriot Mobile, their right-wing cell phone provider. So just imagine, I mean, this is this is a dystopian picture that's painted here. Just imagine your kid, sorry, you can't take out a handmaid's tale from the library because like the anti-woke cell phone company is funding all these campaigns. Is there an equivalent of this on the left? Like a woke like food delivery company that's like funding candidates? I mean, between like niche stuff like this and the my pillow guy it seems like there is a robust market of conservatives using very niche market products to advance their political ends story gets into this that there's not really a pack that's like funding the people who won't ban tony morrison books so everyone the patriot mobile people are taking over our schools on that note Let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.